you know, this is kind of like a holiday. I mean, this is Super Bowl Sunday. Valentine's Day is later this week. Tomorrow is the most missed day at work in, in the year. I think it's related to the Super Bowl. Holidays are really interesting times for folks. For some people, it's the best of times. For others, it's kind of the worst of times. In the holidays, you might have a Norman Rockwell family. Or you might be like us, more like the Griswolds, right, in Christmas vacation. It kind of depends. Holidays are also a time where people love being with others, but some folks, it's a pretty lonely time. I think the devil, our adversary, wants us alone and feeling lonely because it makes us more vulnerable and it causes us to be weak. When is the last time you felt really alone? You know, there are several times that generally pop up and I feel alone during them. One is sometimes in the middle of the night when I can't sleep, I feel really, really lonely by myself. When I was a senior in college, I needed to go from Tahlequah, Oklahoma to Seattle, Washington for a program called Semester at Sea. Well, to go from Tahlequah to Seattle was going to cost me $250 to fly, but I learned if I took the Trailways bus system, I could do it for $99. So I got on a bus, a Trailways bus, at the bus station slash diner slash hair salon in Tahlequah, Wave goodbye to my girlfriend, Darla, who's now my wife, and my mom and dad. And I rode a Trailways bus for 62 hours to Seattle, Washington. Yeah, you know, it worked out. I saved $2.43 an hour. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, it was not worth it. I will tell you, it was not worth it. But on that trip, the two nights that I was on that bus not sleeping, some of the most lonely times in my life. Sometimes it happens in the middle of the night. Sometimes you might feel really lonely when you're surrounded by thousands of people. So we have an NBA basketball team in Oklahoma City. You wouldn't have known by what happened yesterday, but um, we do. They're the Oklahoma City Thunder. We are the only professional sports team that actually has a pregame invocation. Football, basketball, hockey, baseball, we're the only team that has a pregame prayer. I've had a chance to lead several of those. One year, a few years ago, I got to lead two prayers during the season, about two weeks apart. Well, now the prayers are pretty specific. They're short, 20 seconds or less, and I really want to go out there without notes. I want to, I want to do a good job. Well, the second time, two weeks after the first, I knew that I had to have a different prayer than I had prayed every year for them. I didn't want to be known as a one-prayer pony there by the 17,000 folks in the audience, so I came up with a new prayer. So before the game begins, they had taken me out to center court. The national anthem singer was right behind me. The announcer says, ladies and gentlemen, please stand and take your hats off. People stood. It got quiet. The thunder line up on this side. The opposing team lines up on this side. My name is announced, the lights go down, and there is a spotlight on me with a row of cameras right in front. And have you ever walked into a room and you thought, okay, why did I come into this room? Or you're having a conversation with somebody, and you have a really important point to make, and you can't remember the point. Well, I mean, that's only in front of one or two people. So 
he says my name, and it's time for me to pray, and I bow, and I'm holding the microphone, and I totally freeze. I cannot remember what I was going to pray. Never had I felt more lonely and alone in front of 17,000 people than right then. You know, my mind immediately began going through the kind of mental uh, uh, Rolodeck of, okay, prayers, prayers, prayers. And it went back to a very first one. I almost began that prayer that mom taught me, now I lay me down to sleep. <laughs> but that, that was not the right answer. I, I, I got a prayer out. It was okay. They did not invite me back for two seasons after that, probably for very good reason. But sometimes we get very alone and lonely, even in the midst of a lot of people. Sometimes also, maybe when you have... Um, some difficulty or stress, or maybe there is something adversarial taking place with you. So literally days before the pandemic hit four years ago, something happened at Oklahoma Christian that was very controversial and newsworthy. It made the news locally. It made the news in the state, across the country, and even internationally. I'm here to tell you, if you've ever heard somebody say any PR is good PR, I will tell you that is not the case. That weekend, though, we figured out what to do, and Monday I got up and I went to the local high school where our recruiter had done something he should not have done with them. And the last thing I heard as I'm leaving campus is my public relations director saying, John, whatever you do, don't talk to the media. Well, that sounds like really good advice, okay? So I drive to this nearby school, I'm going down their long driveway, and I thought, wow, what a coincidence, there's two local TV trucks right here. I thought, I wonder what they're doing here. And then I park my car, I get out of my car, I'm walking about 50 yards toward the front door, and I realize I have been intercepted, I've been ambushed by two cameramen and two reporters for two different stations. And I'm remembering what my PR director said. She said, do not talk to the media. But I'm also thinking about all those times you see somebody going into a federal court. They've been indicted for something, and you, they held their head down, or they try to shield themselves. That's not a good look. So I decided I needed to talk to the media. But as I went and began to talk to them, I felt so lonely, and I felt so all alone by myself. Sometimes it just happens to us. Is loneliness a big deal? Three out of ten Americans say they are lonely. Among young people under the age of 18, 80% say they're lonely. Those for 27 years of age to 40, it's 73%. One out of ten high school and college students say they are lonely every single day. 8% of our fellow Americans have clinical loneliness. That is, some aspect of their life is impaired because of loneliness. Loneliness has great physical effect on us as well. It causes us to age more quickly, to die at younger ages, to be more sick. It's, it has the mortality equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day or being an alcoholic. Our adversary wants us to be alone and lonely. It makes us vulnerable and it makes us weak. Three lies that I believe the devil wants us to believe. The first lie is this, you can do it by yourself. And maybe even more than that, you have to do it by yourself. Think about Moses. So in Exodus 17 and 18, 
two experiences occur that are pretty amazing and pretty telling for us. Now, think about the nation of Israel. They have come out of Egypt. Talk about some successes. They've escaped 400 years of slavery. Pharaoh changes his mind, races after you. You've got all of their goods anyway. But just as the stress of him arriving, God intervenes and the Red Sea parts and you go through and Pharaoh and his army is trapped. You get on the other side and things are good until you begin to get thirsty and the people begin to complain. And they find some water, but it's bitter water. God has Moses throw some wood into it and it gets better and things are good until people get both thirsty and hungry. Now they're hungry God sends them manna in the morning and quail at night. Tara Lee Cobble with the Bible Recap, she says that's the right kind of diet. Carbs in the morning, protein at night. But then it keeps going on. They get thirsty again and God has Moses strike the rock and water gushes forth. But now they've gone to Rephidim and they're out in the desert and this is the first time this particular thing occurs to them. The Amalekites attack them. Moses goes to Joshua and says, Joshua, get some men together to fight the Amalekites. Now think about this. They have been for centuries slaves. They don't have weapons. They don't have training. They don't have an army. And yet here they are to fight a real army. And Moses says, and tomorrow I will go up on this hill and I will pray. The next morning, Moses goes up on the hill, and he's accompanied by two individuals, Aaron, his brother, and Hur, who might have been his brother-in-law. And Moses is up on the hill, and as long as his hands are raised up, and he is praying to God, the Israelites are winning the battle. But you can only do that for so long, and as he gets tired and his arms come down, the Amalekites begin to prevail. Well, Aaron and Hur, they roll a rock so that Moses can sit down, and then they stand on either side of him holding his arms till till the day ends and the Israelites prevail. Moses thought he could do it by himself, but he could not. The next chapter, his father-in-law shows up. Now, that might be bad news for some folks. In this case, it was good news that his father-in-law, Jethro, showed up because he brought his wife and his two kids, Moses' wife and two sons, with him. And Jethro, who was a priest in Midian, came to Moses and said, I have heard about what your God, Yahweh, has done. And Moses told him even more, and he said, your God is the greatest of all gods. And in fact, Jethro sacrifices to Yahweh has a big feast for Moses and his leaders. And then they go to bed, and the next morning, Moses wakes up and he goes to work. And his work was to go and sit among the people and answer their questions and decide their disputes all day long. At the end of the day, Jethro says, Moses, what are you doing? And Moses says, well, the people need answers. They need to have justice, and I provide that to them. And Jethro says... Moses, I'm sure, is hoping, hey, I'm going to get some good praise from my father-in-law. And Jethro says, what you do is not a good thing. You're going to wear yourself out, and you're going to wear all the people out. You need to be going to God on behalf of your people, and you need to be teaching the people what God would have them to do. So here's some advice from your dear old father-in-law, and see if God agrees with this. You need to find some men, men who fear God, 
and men who don't want unlawful gain. And you put those men over a thousand or over a hundred or over fifty or over ten and let them decide the simple disputes. They can bring the complicated things to you, but that way you won't be worn out and the people won't be worn out either. And Moses saw the wisdom in that, and he did that. And then he told Jethro, thanks, time for you to go, all right, leave. Uh, Fathers-in-law are like fish, right? Three days is about enough, and then it's time for them to move on. But Moses realized that he could not do it alone. Now, another lie of loneliness, pretty simply, is sometimes we think that there is no one on our side. We are it. We are all by ourselves. Second Kings chapter 6 is a kind of an amazing story that takes place. Aram is fighting Israel. And the king of Aram has said, hey guys, let's go and we're going we're gonna to ambush the Israelites at this particular place. Well, the king of Israel learns about this and doesn't go there. And it happens over and over and over again. Where the king of Aram and his men go, the king of Israel avoids. And why is this happening? The king of Aram, he gathers his officers together and says, who is the traitor among us? I know somebody must be a traitor because they know everything we're going to do. One of his officers steps up and says, it's none of us, king. It's the man of God. It is Elisha. He knows every word that is spoken by you, even in your bedroom, that private time as well. The king of Aram thought for a minute. He said, find out where this Elisha is, and I will have him captured. Pretty soon, word comes back that he's in Dothan, a small village. And so the king of Aram puts together a SEAL 6 team, but it's really big, and it's pretty powerful. And it's got horses and chariots and soldiers. And at night, they go to Dothan, and they surround the town of Dothan. Early the next morning, Elisha's servant wakes up and goes outside and he sees the enemy surrounding them. He goes into a panic. He comes back into Elisha and says, what are we going to do? They're all around us. And Elisha says to him, those who are for us, those who are on our side, are more than those who are on their side. And then Elisha prays, God, open the eyes of my servant that he may see reality. The servant goes back outside, and he sees horses and flaming chariots all around. Sometimes when we think we are all alone, we are not. We've got God right there with us. Now, I love how the story ends. The Arameans begin to come in. They're about to get Elisha. Elisha prays again. He says, God, blind these men. And all of a sudden, they can't see. And Elisha goes to them and says, you guys are on the wrong road, and you've gone to the wrong town. Follow me, and I will take you to the man you're looking for. And they follow him. He takes them down the road into Samaria. He takes them into Samaria. God opens their eyes again, and apparently, they are now surrounded by a much larger Israel army. And the king of Israel says to Elisha, Shall we kill them? Father, shall we kill them now? And Elisha says, you wouldn't kill someone that you have captured. Let's do something different. Why don't we feed them? And why don't we give them plenty to drink? Let's throw a party in their honor. 
The Arameans do that. They leave that place and go back to their king, and the war between those countries ended. But sometimes when we think we are all alone, God is right there with us. And here's the third lie of loneliness. And this lie is, this has never happened to anybody else before. I am the first person to experience this thing, so there's nobody there to help me because nobody knows what I'm going through. The writer of Ecclesiastes tells us, what is will be again, what has been done will happen again, for there is nothing new under the sun. I love 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. One of the versions says, there is no test or temptation that has come to you that is not common to man. But God is always faithful. He won't let you be tested beyond what you can do, and he is always going to provide a way out for you. So when you feel lonely, God is there and providing something for you. I am no psychologist. I am no counselor. I am no doctor. I don't have any really strong medical or psychological advice for someone who is lonely. But I will tell you this, God is there with you. And don't do what some of us might have a tendency to do when we feel lonely. We actually self-medicate by becoming even more lonely. Maybe we binge watch television or, or Netflix, or maybe we spend all of our time on the computer, or we, be, we're just, we decide to pull ourselves away from everyone else. That's the worst possible thing that we can do. And it might be that a Christian counselor is exactly the person that we need in our life at that time. Now, for those of you who aren't lonely, a couple of things. One, you will be lonely someday. Something's going to happen. So be prepared for that. But while you're not lonely, keep an eye out for those who are. So in 1938, a guy had a dream. This guy's name was Philip Van Dorenstern, and he had a dream of this story that he thought was pretty powerful, and so he woke up and he committed the story to paper. And this short story, he realized as good as it was in his dream, it really didn't, it really didn't flow very well, and so he put it on the shelf. 1943, he had learned how to write a bit better. He pulls it back out. He goes to it. He makes it a lot better. His agent sends it out to a lot of publishers, and the publishers are all unanimous in their response. Nobody wants to publish this short story. So in 1943, he does what I guess people would do back in 1943. He makes 200 copies of his short story, and he sends it out to his 200 favorite friends as a Christmas card for them. The star of the story is a guy named George Pratt. George grew up in this small town, and he had great dreams, and there were big things that he was going to do. But, but during his life, he realized that he hadn't accomplished those things, and he began to feel sorry for himself and wonder, man, have I made any difference whatsoever? I, I don't think so. It just hasn't been worth it. And then he realized in the course of the story that the little things that he had done over the years had made a great difference. Back in World War II, the U.S. military would actually take short stories that were inspiring, and sometimes they would make thousands and thousands and thousands of copies and distribute those to the soldiers on the front line, to encourage them. And this story, The Greatest Gift, was one of those stories. And there was a guy named Frank Capra. He was, um, 
He was a movie producer and director before the war, and he became one afterwards. He got a hold of this, the greatest gift story, and he thought, I can make a movie out of this. And he reaches out to a buddy of his who is a hero in the war. He is a bomber pilot, has been very successful. His name is James, and says, have you read the short story, The Greatest Gift? And James had not read it, but he had heard of it. And Frank Capra said, we're going to make this movie after the war. And in 1946, the movie is released, It's a Wonderful Life, based on Philip Van Storen's book, The Greatest Gift. Now, his daughter writes a postlude to the story and says, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing. What is amazing is the awesome impact of the seemingly insignificant. It's the little things that make such a great difference. And that's true for people who are lonely as well. In his memoir uh, called Green Lights, Matthew McConaughey, your fellow Texan, writes a kind of an interesting vignette. In this particular part of the story, this, this fellow who grew up in a working class family in Uvalde, Texas, had hit upon some pretty amazing success pretty quickly. He was all of a sudden a star of movies. His bank account was bulging with the revenue and income that he was receiving. His face was on glossy magazine covers. He had it all, except he didn't feel like he had it all. He, um, he realized that he was being taken away from the roots that he was raised in, family and faith and people, and he was having temptation and difficulties that he could not overcome. And he also felt like an imposter. I don't deserve all of these things. He began to read religious books, and he learned about a place out in the desert of New Mexico. It's called Jesus in the Desert Monastery, Christ in the Desert Monastery. And he said, I need to go there. So a buddy drove him, dropped him off on the dirt road that led to the monastery, and then Matthew McConaughey walked for 13 and a half miles to get to the monastery. He knocked on the door, they brought him in, they showed him his cell, he had his mat that he slept on that night, and early the next morning, he met with one of the monks in the monastery. This guy's name was Brother Christian. What a great name for a monk in a monastery. Matthew McConaughey and Brother Christian hiked the desert for three and a half hours. They walked around cactus and dying trees, parched earth, hot sun. McConaughey talked the entire time about the temptations that he had had, the failures that he had made, the fact that he he felt so unmoored from who he really was. He talked about all the bad things that he had done. He talked about his struggles. And Brother Christian didn't say a word. After That three and a half hours, they found themselves back at the monastery outside the chapel. They're sitting on a bench. McConaughey is crying, and he he says he has taken himself to the woodshed on the way he has lived. And finally, he ends his confession, and he stops, and he knows he's going to be rebuked or reprimanded. He knows he's going to be judged by Brother Christian. And Brother Christian, who has not said anything for now four hours, turns to him and says, Me too. There will come a time when you find yourself in the figurative desert. 
maybe great success or maybe great failure will put you in a place of loneliness where you feel by yourself and you feel like you have no one with you. My prayer for you is that you have a friend that will hear your story and share theirs. A friend who will share Christ and the encouragement of God with you. And my prayer also is that we are that person who can be there on God's behalf for those who need us. At the very end of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, there is a great line because there is a book, and George Bailey opens the book, and it's from Clarence, the angel who earned his wings, and he said, Dear George, remember, no man is a failure who has friends. Brothers and sisters, the devil, our adversary, wants us alone and lonely because that's when we're the most weak and we're the most vulnerable. We have each other and we have God on our side. If there's any way that we can be of an encouragement to you, I know the elders will be ready for you outside. Would you please stand while we sing?